Today is May 6, 2012. Our title today is called The Gap Certainty. Uh, it's definitely not called The Gap Theory. Uh, it is called The Gap Certainty, and I'm going to explain why. Now, when I say that, if you begin to have all kind of visions of what the gap certainty or gap theory means to you, uh, please don't credit me with your thoughts about this, uh, because I'm going to give you uh, exactly what I believe the Word teaches about it. And just like we did the other night uh, with the topic of Nephilim and ancient accounts, I promise there's a very practical message in it for you. If you have felt the power of darkness this week, if you felt overwhelmed with chaos, if you felt beat into a greasy little spot like some of those testimonies were just before we began this message, this would be a good message for you. The book of Genesis was written during a time that the world was thought by many to reside on the back of a tortoise. Or, or, or a big turtle. That thing. Can you imagine that? When the best the world scholars could come up with is, yeah, I think we're sitting on the back of a reptile, right? Popular medicine in Egypt around the year 1600 B.C. involved rubbing nasty things, literally bodily fluids, into a wound in the hope that it would cure infection. Yeah, you think that our doctors asked you to do stupid things, huh? The Bible is so far ahead of its contemporaries that any honest accounting of it lead you to one conclusion, that it is divine. It was written over a span of nearly 1600 years. It had more than 40 authors. That in itself is amazing. More than 40 contributors. They came from every walk of life. We had kings, peasants, fishermen, philosophers, poets, statesmen, and scholars. You have men like Moses who was a political leader. He was trained in Egyptian universities. You had Peter, a fisherman. Amos, a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Luke, a doctor. And Daniel functioned more like a prime minister. Solomon was a king and Matthew was a tax collector. And then our friend Paul. Paul was a Jewish rabbi. The Bible was written in different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote in a dungeon. Daniel on a hillside and in a palace. Paul sat inside prison walls. John was in exile on barren Isle of Patmos. The authors wrote during different moods. Some were at the heights of joy. Others were at the depth of despair. They wrote it on three continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. They wrote it in three languages, Hebrew, the language of the Jews, Aramaic, the common language of the Near East, until Alexander the Great brought Greek. Greek was the international language at the time of Christ. Considering all that, it's divine that we have the same integrated scarlet thread running through every single book. Any honest accounting of it says that it's divine. The Bible has been read by more people, has been published in more languages than any other book in history. This very morning I was looking for recent statistics and I found that at Gordon-Conwell University in 2009, they gave their seminary students a project. How many Bibles in 2009 were handed out worldwide? The best educated estimate was that there were 83 million Bibles distributed every single year, including 2009. Do the math, friends. 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, that is still 9,474 Bibles handed out every single hour. That's more than 227,000 every single night and day of the entire year, every year. This does not begin to touch the 490 million selections from books of the Bible that are printed every year. That's so much that I could say on this subject. But there's a Faith Fundamentals class coming. 
on the Bible. And I'll teach you everything I know about it then. I want to tell you, this pastor loves the scripture. I love it. It's absolutely changed my mind, my, my whole life. After our teaching on the five and Wednesday night, conventional wisdom says I should pick something mainstream today. Get back in the center of the road, the center of the room. But then you know me, don't you? I've never been in the mainstream, never been in the center of the room, and I don't want to. Charles Finney once looked at the men who offered to ordain him, and he said, Men, if you are the best examples of what that seminary and this ordination represent, I find you woefully short of the example of Christ, so I think I shall decline your offer. Charles Finney had the courage to look at everyone around him and say, I've examined Jesus and I've examined you. And I think I'll follow him. Come on, where's your heart this morning? We live in the day of bumper sticker theology. It's a time when gospel light reigns and the average Christian knows so little about the gospel that at best, they quote a few doctrinal points that were required of them for acceptance in their membership. I want to go further. I want to go deeper into the truths of God. Not so that you develop some esoteric thought not so that you decide that you're better than anywhere else, but I want to know Him. It's not enough for me to have the gospel printed on a one-page piece of paper or on a bumper sticker on a car or a t-shirt determine what I think about the Lord when He wrote to me 66 contiguous books that are the bestseller of all time. They've been printed when it was burned. They've been printed when the churches of the day considered it a pest and killed everyone who owned one. They've been printed by the year 400. The Bible had been translated into 400 languages. 400. Because God wants His people to know what it says. Let's not sell Him short. I like to teach on things that will broaden our hunger for the Word. I also hope to show you in each of them practical Thoughts, practical applications that you might live out even the most complex doctrines. From Wednesday night, some of you might know what Benai Elohim is. This is the sons of God, usually translated angels. Others might remember that Rapha means giant in Hebrew. Still others might remember that Gibber Hail is my son's nickname and it also means mighty warrior. Maybe somebody forgot all of those things but remember that the word Nephilim had to do with a fallen one. And then in Greek, it was gigantes. Maybe you don't remember any of those things, but you said, Pastor quoted the book of Josephus, and I thought that was interesting. Or he read to us from the 10th chapter of Enoch. I don't care if you remember any of those things if you took one glaring point away from it. The enemy has seated your life with opposition, but God has called you to be a giant killer. Is there anybody in here that remember they were called the knockdown giants? Is there anybody in here that wanted to fill their shepherd's bag, not with one stone, but as many giants as you knew there were, you were ready to kill? Amen. Is there anybody in here that wants to live their life differently because of what you now know? Yes. yes. Well, when we look at this topic today, which I'm calling the gap certainty, obviously that seems audacious. Everyone else calls it a theory. I call it a, a certainty. But faith is sometimes audacious, isn't it? Faith looks and says the substance of things hoped for, I can feel, I can touch, I can taste it. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. I want to tell you that the book of Genesis is a beautiful poem. If you look at the preface to your Bible, if it is a decent Bible, it will have 
uh, a preface that tells you how the typeset is put together, how they decided to put footnotes in it, what a bold letter means. They'll have a note on the tetratomogram, what capital L-O-R-D means. They will teach you a little bit about the translation. Probably none of you took the time to read that preface, and I understand, but I'm one of those guys that did. When you see letters that are inset in your text, letters that are indented from all of the others, this indicates by the translator the presence of poetry. Now friends, why does a man write a poem to his wife? Why does an artist write a poem? Why don't you just say what you mean blatantly without, without beauty, without rhythm, without meter, without any special meaning? Why do you take the time to write a poem? Because you hope that it impacts the senses. You hope that it's something that will be remembered. You hope that it leaves the indelible mark of the love of the artist who wrote it. And Genesis comes to us in the way of a poem. And that's why it's indented in your Bible. Not only does it come to us in the way of a poem, in English it has many paragraphs. But in Hebrew that was not so. Our paragraphs fall in different places. The verse numbers are not there in the original text. In the original text in Hebrew, this simply falls into six neatly defined stanzas to a poem, followed by a pause. What could that be trying to communicate? Six neatly organized, orderly stanzas, followed by a rest. It seems that the king of the universe put punctuation marks in Genesis by the way that he wrote it. When Moses sat down to write this, the 5th verse, the 8th verse, the 13th verse, the 19th, the 23rd, and the 31st, all say something like, and there was evening, and there was morning, the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, all the way through 6th day. It was to tell you that God would do something. He would do it in a pattern. The pattern would always be from darkness to light. From darkness to light. Six times we go from darkness to light. And then we start something new. Darkness to light. And then we start something new. Darkness to light. How many times could we repeat that before you would kind of get the impression that God takes people from darkness to light? He wrote it as a poem because he wanted to impact your senses. He put a refrain at the, each, at the end of each stanza in the poem to remind you what the stanza was about. It doesn't matter what he created on each day. It doesn't matter the order of those creations. He wanted you to know it all tells the same story. We're going from darkness to light. Has anybody in this room needed to go from darkness to light in your life? What is the natural state of things? Are you born enlightened? I mean, why did Buddha, why did Siddhartha set out on his journey? Hmm? Why did Confucius sit down to write his book? Why did Muhammad set out on a quest all over the earth to subjugate people if they were not looking for something that they did not have? The natural state of things is darkness. But only the Bible takes us from darkness and into light. The book of Genesis is that story. It goes from darkness to light. It describes an orderly process. You engineers might call this structure. Men who sit around and determine the best, most efficient way to do things might look at something that was random, that was chaotic, that was ugly and dark, and speak into it and say, this should be done first, followed by this. And by the way, when you get to step seven, I want you to go take a break, sit down and think about the directions for a while. Come on, you ever had to put something together, guys? I mean, we had to put together this 
this swing set thing that is in the other suite, I could have built that thing five times over from scratch as opposed to follow those directions. They were terrible. It had more than 7,500 pieces in it. 7,500 pieces in it. Give me a nail gun in two hours, JJ, we will have built the whole thing. But it had set, every once in a while I had to sit down and think about the author's intent. Right? I sit down and determine, is he trying to kill me? Or is he trying to build something I cannot yet see? And why are there no illustrations in this thing? It took faith, friends. It took faith. The book of Genesis is teaching us something. He speaks into darkness. He speaks into chaos. Order. The same way that he speaks into your life and brings order. When we look at the first verse, the 27th verse, the 28th verse, and the 31st verse, these, according to all of the... I'm not a Semitic language expert. But according to all of the Semitic language experts, these are the point of the poem. You know, when you listen to Shakespeare spoken, or the King James Bible spoken, which is the same kind of English, or you hear the rhyme of the ancient mariner, you hear something like iambic pentameter. You can tell when you get to the end of a stanza what the author was trying to tell you, because somehow, some way, the language emphasizes it. The language in Genesis emphasizes these specific verses. And I want to tell you, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Is that worth emphasizing? Yes, the Bible stands alone in all the books of its time and makes the bold statement that everything that you see, whether in the sky, the starry realm, or some realm beyond that that you can't see, heavens, plural, three of them at least, or on the earth that you can see, God created it. In the 27th verse, it says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. He wanted you to know that not only did He create everything, He created you and after a pattern that resembled Him. The, the rhythm and language of the poem wants you to understand that He made everything, but you were the only thing He made to be like Him. Why does a man write a poem to a woman? Why does an artist write a song especially? He wants to impact your senses. He wants you to understand that He cares about you. This is a kind of love language. In verse 28, He says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. His blessing was upon the work of His hands. He blessed you not simply to exist. He blessed you to do something. You have a task. He instituted order out of chaos. He let you know that He's the author of everything, but most specifically, He's your designer. He blessed you and gave you work to do. Then in the 31st verse, maybe the most profound statement that is earth-shattering, absolutely changing in every way if you simply sit and meditate on it. In the 31st verse, it says, God saw all that He made, and it was very good. So often we look at the world and we say, man, if God, uh, one popular artist who I love said, if God's been working on heaven 2,000 years and this earth only six days, man, the earth is like living in a garbage can. And it gets a big laugh always. But you know what? God made the earth beautiful. He made His people beautiful. He called it not just good on every day, on the sixth day when He made a man. He said, it is very good. Who are we to say anything different? 
If God called it good, who are we to say anything different? Come on, does the earth have problems? Yeah, it has problems. But God declared it good. You know who else has problems? You do. But God has declared those of you who trust Him, those of you who have trust-grounded obedience that we could call faith, He has called you good. Who is anybody else to say any different? What an interesting thing. He's called you righteous. The book of Genesis gives us insight into how God sees us. Does He see us in need of repair? Of course. He described the problem. But the Bible in its very essence is a book about the creation of man, his fall, and most importantly, his restoration. Is the Bible a book on dinosaurs? No. Is the Bible a book on medicine? Is the Bible a, a book on archaeology? Lindsay's not here today, but on geology? Hmm? The Bible contains statements about almost all of those things. But that's not what the Bible's about. Who is the center picture of the Bible? We can say, oh, it's God. It's really not. It's man. He has made you the center of the Bible. He's made your life the center or apple of His eye, He says. Apple of your eye is a way to say your pupil. Anybody want me to touch your pupil today? God said only if He'd let you touch His pupil would He let you touch His people. The apple of His eye. Turn with me to Genesis 1. Let us read some of the sacred text and see what we can glean from it. Are y'all bored already? Y'all quiet today. Are, are y'all upset? You stayed up too late watching a football game or something? You're hungry. You're hungry. Well, look, let me, let me just set this at ease. We're going to feed you. We're going to feed you. We're going to give you something to eat, right? If your faith gets right, we'll multiply what's out there. How about that? Come on now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Joy, put that slide on the screen. This is an interesting thing. You've got to love God. When He uses the word was in this second verse... When he says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, now the earth was formless and void. Come on, this would be a fun one to say with me. Say, hi ya Come on, what did ninjas drink? What? <laughs> Matt told me that joke this morning, so blame that one on him. When God said, now the earth was formless and void, this is a Hebrew word called hi ya It appears 3,500 times in the scripture. Isn't that a crazy thing? 3,500 times? Now, let me ask you, if I put R-E-A-D on the screen, somebody tell me, what's that say? Read. Which is it? Is it read or read? How, how would you know context if I only put R-E-A-D on the screen? You need context to know what the word means. How about B-A-S-S? It's what some of you put in your car and it's what others put in their stomachs, you know? Or... It's what the first baseman stands on. I, I don't know. Okay, you need context. It's got an E on it. You need context to know what some words mean. The word hayah is one of those words in Hebrew. To say hayah could mean a lot of things. Would you like to see an example? Well, the first one comes in Genesis 1-2. Now the earth was formless and void. This says, now the earth hayah, 
formless and void. The earth, Hayah Tohu Vavohu, is what that phrase is in Hebrew. Hayah Tohu Vavohu. Now, if you see that Hayah is translated was in Genesis 1-2, what would you expect it to be translated as in Genesis 1-3? Was. Hayah was here. <laughs> right? You would be looking for some consistency. But is it possible to have the word read in the first sentence mean read and in the second sentence be in another tense read without changing the word? Yeah, it absolutely is. In English or any other language, these words exist. Now, a message that rests entirely on linguistics is not much of a message. And I won't bore you with all of this today, but I would like to show you in the third chapter, or, I'm sorry, third verse, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be, is Hayah. Let there be. God said, let there be, Hayah, light. And there was light, there was light. Also, Hayah. Anybody want to learn Hebrew yet? Seems like there's only a few words in it, and they mean everything. In Genesis 1-2, Hayah means was. In Genesis 1-3, it means let there be, and also it means there was. Isn't that an interesting language? The only way that you know what Hayah means is by the words that are around it. The only way that you know is just like Cassidy said about the word base or the word read and read, you only know by context. Now, how would you like to translate the very first paragraph in the Bible and know that the first chapter alone has Hayah in it 27 times? 27 times. Let me show you another one. Somebody go to Genesis 3.22. Tell me when you get to 3.22. Now, I'm not there, but tell me, does it say something like, the man has now become like one of us? It says something like that? Does it say exactly that? Now, the man has become like one of us. Has become. You know what that word is? You guessed it. Hayah. You can find Hayah in lots of tenses based on its usage. Now, who in here is in the NIV translation? Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you have no Bibles or you have a different Bible. What are some of the other translations you have? NASB. NASB. Jewish. Complete Jewish Bible. You will find notes in almost every major translation by Genesis 1-2 where it says, Now the earth was formless and void. It'll say, or possibly became in your footnote. In the NIV, the reason that that footnote appears according to the authors... Uh, the translators, rather, is any time there's an alternate translation that is equally valid but not preferred by the translator. That's a quote from the beginning of my Bible. Does it make a difference to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, now the earth became formless and void? That's a little different than to say the earth was formless and void. Are they both possible? Yeah, it became and it was. So how do you know from context which it, which it is? This is the problem behind reading the first couple verses of the Bible. is how do you put this in its proper context? It's interesting to note that the Bible does provide us some context. By the way, on what day was waters, plural, created? Y'all show me waters. Find the first occurrence of waters in your Bible. Somebody call it out when you find it. In Genesis 1-2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Have we got to the period where we have light and darkness yet? Have we got from evening to morning the end of the first day? And we do this six more times. And you know what? On, on 
No day do you see darkness created, nor do you see waters created. Is that a hint as to context? Now, I'm just curious. Is there any time in the Bible in which God used darkness or waters as signs of judgment? In the Noah a flood, did he flood the earth with waters? Yes. How many times did the prophet say on judgment he would darken the sun in the sky? How many times did that happen? Is it unreasonable, is it unbiblically sound then to suggest that it's possible that when you see darkness and waters it's the scene of a judgment? Well, if that's all we said, then I would say, Brother, you, you're seriously stretching here. But that's not all we see in the Scripture. I'd like to tell you that one of the problems with me teaching this topic, one of the problems, especially with doing it on a Sunday morning, where we're supposed to keep it gospel light and dumb it down for the guests, that's what we're supposed to do. Keep a message to maybe 23, 25 minutes. Make sure everybody's happy, the kids are entertained at a playland, and you have your Starbucks coffee in the lobby. When that's what I'm supposed to do, the problem with all of this becomes, well, it becomes people just aren't that interested in learning more. We have a minimalist view of salvation. What's the minimum that I have to know to be saved? Is that the heart of, of God's people? What's the minimum? I want to know everything about Him. Now, there are a few problems with the idea of what is called the gap theory. One is it's associated with other things. The men who, who espoused it during the 18th and 19th century, they, they associated it with the fall of Satan. Is it possible to be right about one subject and wrong about another? <laughs> you find me a theologian who's not right about one subject and wrong about another, and we found Jesus. <laughs> right? That, that's the only one I've ever met that is that way. How, how about this one? Some say, well, this gap theory idea is solely a response to modern geology. See, when people conclusively proved that the earth was older than 6,000 years, those theologians, they had to find an answer for it. Has anybody ever heard that? Yeah, I, I started ministry on a college campus. So every time we ran into a professor, those were the things that we heard. It's important to note that what I'm teaching you today and what we're going to go a little further into before we get to some very practical meat and potatoes kind of things is not new. I want you to hear what one author says about it. It's important and interesting to observe how the early fathers of the Christian church should seem to have entertained precisely similar views. He's speaking about what is known as the gap theory. For St. Gregory the Nazarene, after St. Justin the Martyr, St. Justin the Martyr is uh, 140 A.D., this guy immediately followed him, uh, St. Gregory the Nazarene. After St. Justin the Martyr supposes an indefinite period between the creation and the first ordering of all things. St. Basil, St. Caesarius, and Origen are much more explicit in their views. To this might be added Augustine, Theodore, Episcopus, and others whose remarks imply the existence of a considerable interval between the creation related in the first verses of Genesis and that which an account is given in the third and following areas. Additionally, friends, have you ever been reading in the Older Testament and heard, is it not written in the book of Jashar? Now, Jashar is one of those books that we don't have in our Bibles. Not even the Catholics included it in their Bible. But it is an ancient work that certainly predates all of the ideas about modern geology. And it takes it for granted that there's a gap there. It mentions it in almost every chapter as a matter of fact. Phineas Dake. Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. Do you know the name Schofield? 
We can quote Schofield everywhere else, but for some reason or another on this one subject, no one wants to quote him. He said, point blank, in his study Bible, there is a gap there. Many other respected Bible scholars endorse this view. I'd like to show you something else in the text more to the point of your life. Is that better? If we move from the academic realm and more into the point of your life, would that be better? How are you going to determine the tense of Hayah? How are you going to know whether it's was, became, was becoming, or had become? How would you know something like that? You could only know it through context, right? So maybe we should look at what the context around it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We have a fundamental question then. What is God doing hovering over the darkness? What is God doing over an earth that is formless and void? Does God normally create that way? What would it be like? This phrase in Hebrew is a fun one. I put it on the screen for you. It's tohu vavohu. Formless and void. You want to know where I most recently heard the word tohu? Nobody wants to know? Y'all know our missionary in Germany, Alma? Alma has two little kids that are energetic. See, Kathleen, you'll appreciate this. When they go into a room, right, they got all their little toys there at their house. They're not bad kids. They're just energetic kids, right? After their mother has cleaned everything and then the children enter the room, in German Yiddish, a uh, 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 Hebrew influence into the German language, the mother walks into the room, sees chaos everywhere, and goes, tohu. She said it while I was there. And I said, do you know what that word is? She goes, yeah, it means it's, it's all in disorder. It's in dis disarray. I said, is it German? She goes, well, I don't know. I'm from Romania. And she asked, Elma, is it German? He goes, I, I don't know where it came from. You don't know how this word got in your language? But there were an awful lot of Jews in Germany, weren't there? At least before Hitler got hold of them. Tohu. It's a word that in their language, in the Yiddish language, means disorder, disarray, because it was orderly and somebody tore it up. Turn with me to Isaiah 24. You're going to keep your finger in Genesis because we're constantly going to come back to that text. In Isaiah 24, would somebody tell me what the chapter title is? That is in the NASB, Judgment on the Earth. Who else has a different translation? What's your title? The Lord's Devastation of the Earth. Why do they put those titles there? Is it part of the Holy Text? No. Why are they there? To give you an idea of the context, Cassidy, that's why they're there. So that if you pick this up and read it, you have an idea that what we're talking about is the Lord's devastation on the earth. Now read with me starting in, say, verse 10. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. The ruined city lies desolate. That's the word tohu. Was, if it was a city, did it, could it have always been desolate? Doesn't a city, by definition, have to have some order to be called a city? How did it become desolate? The word tohu implies something happened that caused it to be desolate. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. Tell me when you're there. Deuteronomy 32 will be in verse 10. Tell me when you are there. 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 
How about verse 8? When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided all mankind, He set up boundaries for the peoples according to their number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted inheritance. In a desert land He found him, in, bar in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Barren and howling waste refers to something. What do you think it refers to? It's two possibilities. Where did he find his people? Where did he find them? Did, did God find his people in the desert, do you think? I'm asking. Did, I, do y'all want to just sit and soak? You, you want a sage on a stage? You want a lecture this morning? Or would you like to participate? I mean, it's your church. We can do whatever you want. We, I, I'll go sit with Steve and wait to see who's got something to teach. Huh? Where, where did God find His people? Some say the desert. Does anyone say anything else? I'm just curious. Israel was called out of what country? Whether you think it's Egypt or the desert makes no difference to me. What just happened in Egypt when they came out? Ten plagues fell on it. Would you call that desolate? I'd say it's pretty beat up. How about the wilderness that they were called into? Was it pretty... Desolate? Were they created to be that way? That is a really good question, isn't it? Were you created to be total, friends? Was your life created to be a chaotic mess, the scene of a judgment? Is that how God made you, just so that He could whip up on you? He wants to spank you? The angry God with a big stick in the sky? Isn't that, isn't that a, a really good question? Lord, why did you make me? How about the other phrase, vavohu? You can see it on your screen behind you. Turn with me to Jeremiah 4. We'll be in Jeremiah 4. Look at verse 18. Your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you. This is your punishment, how bitter it is, how it pierces to the heart. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I have heard the sound of a trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. Before I read any further, what is, what is he speaking about? What did Jeremiah live through? Really? Y'all don't know? What did Jeremiah live through? Michael, what did Jeremiah live through? Captivity. He's watching his people get destroyed. Did God create them to destroy? Did God call them out of Egypt hoping they would fail? Did God from the beginning destine them for destruction? I don't think so. Listen to what the prophet's saying. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant my tents are destroyed. My shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? My people are fools. They don't know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They do not know how to do good. Jeremiah is speaking. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens and their light was gone. What is he describing, friends? He's describing the scene of his city, his surroundings after judgment. And you know what phrase is there when he says it's formless and empty? It's tohu. Vavohu. Did God create Jerusalem to be tohu vavohu? No, He created it to be inhabited. He created it to be beautiful. But something happened. Sin happened. Judgment happened. 
Would you like to see the only other place in all of the Bible the phrase appears? Mm -hmm. Look at Isaiah 34 with me. Tell me when you get to Isaiah 34. There. By the way, what is the title above Isaiah 34? Judgment against the nation. Judgment against the nation. Isn't it amazing that every chapter that this shows up with in the Bible has something to do with judgment? Wouldn't you call that context? I mean, isn't that exactly what context is? Isaiah 34, look at verse 11. The desert owl and the screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos, tohu, and the plumb line of vovohu, desolation. I don't want to keep going with the linguistics lesson. I feel as if I'm boring you already, but let me tell you this. Every time you see tohu show up in the Bible, I mean every single time, it has something to do with lying in waste. Lying in waste that is usually the result of warfare or judgment. You never see Vavohu in the Bible separate from Tohu. That has a relationship between the two. If you only see two people together, if you only see Caitlin when you see Spencer, and only see Spencer when you see Caitlin, does that imply a relationship between the two? Some of you single people say that you're single, but I only see you showing up with some significant other. Doesn't that imply a relationship? It really does. Tohu and Vavohu have a relationship. Tohu causes Vavohu. Tohu is that desolation from judgment. And Vohu has to do with a complete lack of order. It has to do with something that has completely lost its purpose. Let me ask you. Did God create you for judgment? Did He create you to be purposeless? He didn't create you for that any more than He created His earth for that. To be under a state of judgment, desolate, a barren, trackless land is Tohu. To be empty, void, devoid of any purpose is Vavohu. Did he create you to be Tohu, Vavohu? Or is the whole point of that Genesis poem that he created everything, but he especially created you in his image? And that he blessed you to fill the earth with goodness that he had given you? Is that the point of See, I think that this gets to the heart fundamentally of what kind of God we serve. But just in case we haven't driven that car far enough, look at Isaiah 45 and tell me when you get to verse 18. You know, I have friends that um, preach in very large churches. I'm really excited for them. Uh, they long to come to churches like this and preach where they don't have to finish in 20 minutes and where they're allowed to use more than a single scripture and an encouraging story followed by a joke. What do you want from the Lord? See, I want to know that His Word addresses everything. I want to know the answers found in His Word. The story of the Bible is always that he finds people in darkness and he introduces something for them. He introduces his word, his light, and it changes everything. Where it was the scene of a judgment, where it was a trackless, barren land of howling waste, completely devoid of purpose, he gives his word and he does it in an orderly way. He does it in a rhythmic way, a way that says, you know what? I created you. 
You know what? I created you in my image. You know what? I want you to fill the earth with goodness. You know what? It's good. It's very good. Isn't that a really different way to look at God than the average person does? This is the way the Hebrew Bible introduces him. Not an angry God waiting to wipe out mankind. A loving, merciful God who has a purpose in your life. Are you in Isaiah 45? Yes. yes. Look at verse 18. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be tohu, empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Why do I say there's a gap certainty? There's a gap certainty because in the word of God, he makes the bold statement that anything there ever has been, he's the maker of. But then the Bible picks up with a story where God is hovering over chaos, hovering over a destruction site, and he begins to fix it. Now God, how, how did it get into a chaos situation? How did it get into a judgment situation? This is where men branch off with all kinds of things that I'm more than happy to call a theory. But I am not happy to say that God created the universe to be the judgment site, to be chaos. In fact, everything that I know about him says he brings order where there is none. What testimony does your life say? Does Amen. it say God is the author of chaos or does it say that God takes chaos and brings order? Amen. Why did he start every single day with evening and then move it to light? Maybe he is trying to teach us the direction he moves everything from darkness to light. That ought to give you hope if you're sitting in darkness. Our God will take you to light if you let him. Isaiah 45 clearly says God did not create the earth to be empty or in tohu. Now, there are all kind of things that you might consider when you think about this, like if the geologists are right, and my theory didn't have anything to do with geology, but if they are right, and the earth is, I don't know, six billion years old, sometime, isn't it great how they range? The earth is between 1.2 and 6.5 billion years. Oh really, you got it that close? <laughs> I mean, that's like saying my house is somewhere between, oh I don't know, here in the distance to the moon. But in any case, they almost universally agree that the earth itself is older than 5,768 years, which is how long the Jews say man has been around, how long the descendants of Adam have been around based on the timeline. Since so often people have ammunition to criticize the Bible because the students of the Bible don't know what the Bible actually says, they simply know what people say about it. I said for years, the earth is 6,000 years old, and I'm confident, in fact, this chart on the wall declares it. Where in the Bible does it say the earth is 6,000 years old? It never does. How, how about all those neat little dinosaur bones that we find? And we even find predator and prey killed at the same time in history, at the exact same moment, and they date millions of years ago. And what are the best that our theologians come up with? Oh, maybe God will reveal it to us one day. Or maybe he put them there to trick people, you know, because that's the kind of God we serve. The, the, the master trickster. 
Are you kidding me? What if the Bible is actually the story of the creation of human beings as we know it, their fall and their restoration? What if the Bible does not make some of the claims people say about it, but the claims that it makes are fantastic enough in themselves to glory in those? See, as I began to study these things and see them, suddenly a lot made sense. Like, I always wondered how Noah fit a Tyrannosaurus T-Rex on the ark. And oh, I, I know, we hear all the little Baptist kids shout out, they were eggs, they were eggs. How did those eggs walk onto the ark? Because God called them in seven pairs of two. Can you see mama and, and child Tyrannosaurus, you know? Uh, daddy and mama, uh, Stegosaurus going onto the ark? So, oh, I know it's the Leviathan and the, Bo the Bohemoth in Scripture. That's the dinosaurs, really? The entire class, order, genus, species of dinosaurs are those two animals? Does that make any sense to any of you? Am I the only one that believes that there can't be a flaw with the Bible, but there may very well be a flaw with our understanding of it? Amen. You know, I've, I've always found it interesting that there's a group of people that will say there's verbal plenary inspiration in the Word. Every word is God breathed. And then do something like stand up and walk out of a church because they spoke in other tongues. So doesn't the 14th chapter of Corinthians say, do not forbid the speaking in tongues? But we're so upset that we also think the 12th chapter says it, it needs to be interpreted. And we just don't know what to do. We're going to do a courageous thing and run out. Happens all of the time. Of course, you can sit in a church for 20 years, never see anyone speak in other tongues and not run out. The same word says both. Is there a problem with the word? Or is there a problem with the understanding of the word? You understand what I'm saying? We have our little pet doctrines. And if somebody else does not see the pet doctrine just like we, oh my God, there's panic. God is not panicked. He is not panicked. He has no pet doctrines. There is simply truth. Were you born inherently the embodiment of truth? You were born in tohu bavohu. Your mama, your daddy, your great-grandfather, your great-great-great-great, how about this one, Pappy? They were all part of the same disease stock you're a part of. But God did not create you to be that way. He created you to be in His shalom, His right order. So He speaks into your darkness and He begins to say, let there be light, Joel. Let there be light. And you say, yes, sir. And then it begins to be a lamp under your feet. A light unto your path. He begins to show you how to put one foot in front of the other until you get six days in and he goes, now look, rest and admire what I've done in you. All right, now the next week starting, the eighth day, let's do it again. And this is the cycle of our life. There's evenings and there's mornings. We are moving from darkness into light. Who had a dark week? No one had a dark week. Who else had a dark week? It won't stay that way. <laughs> Because the God we serve is leading us out of darkness and into light. You had a bad year? Praise God, it's gone. Yeah, sometimes the present is a present. Isn't it? I've had years that I'm glad are gone. Yahweh did not create you to be desolate after judgment, tohu. He did not create you to be lacking form, purpose, and order, vavohu. In fact, he created you to be in Christ Jesus, who is the embodiment of peace. Look at Colossians 1. 
Turn with me to Colossians 1. Y'all turn, turn. I don't hear pages going. If you give up on me, what am I going to do? It's going to make the next few minutes awkward, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, Eric, why didn't you just start with the latter half of the message? Because I think you ought to know the first half. Isn't that fair? We could just, uh, I know what we'll do. We'll have a bumper sticker. It'll say, Darkness to Light. That'll be our bumper sticker. And then we'll be the Church of the Doctrine of Darkness to Light. And all you'll have to ask somebody, Hey man, what church do you go to? I go to the Church of Darkness to Light. We want things that simple. We, we want things boiled down to the absolute, just no multiple choice. Just give me the answer. You know what I find beautiful about the Lord? The same thing that I find beautiful about poetry, Matthew, or song. That you can hear it the first time and not get all of the meaning. You can hear it the second time and get a little more. And the third time and get a little more. You can hear it for 20 years and it's still new to you. Amen. Why did God choose to communicate His Word, the first chapter, in poetry? Maybe He wanted you to see it beautiful every day. By the way... While you're in Colossians, anybody know what the Hebrew name for Genesis is? Bereshith. Then we move to Shemoth. Then we move to Weibra. Then Bemidbar. Then Devarim. If we're Hebrew-speaking people, this would quite literally say in the beginning, these are the names the Lord called in the wilderness and gave His word. Isn't that exactly what Genesis is teaching? He found us in the midst of tohu vavohu, but he gave us his word. Amen. Come on now. He didn't create your life to be a disaster. He created it to glorify him. And he moves you from disaster to light. Are you in Colossians? Yes. Here comes 1 and the 13th verse. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. darkness. You mean he didn't create out of darkness and waters? <laughs> no, he rescued you from it. Darkness. And brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians sums up the gospel in the same way the opening verses of the Bible do. He's moving us from darkness and into light. In fact, all of the ancient rabbis that I could find, every one of them, said so the point of the Bible is in the first three verses. All the rest is simply commentary. God comes in. He looks at the mess of your life, the judgment that is in your life. And He says, here's my light. And light begins to separate darkness. And suddenly your life begins to have order and purpose, rhythm and meter. And you know what? It's like poetry to the rest of the world that says something about God. That's the point. He has made you, I think one writer said, a living epistle, Spencer. You yourselves are letters, Paul said, written on our hearts. Our lives are supposed to... Is it supposed to communicate it simply through a bumper sticker? No, it's supposed to communicate it in all of those beautiful little nuances that says, I'm still flawed. I still have tragic problems. But every time we move from evening to morning, there's hope. Come on now. Am I the only one that finds that beautiful? No, no, no. I know. I'm, one, I'm a knuckle dragger. I'm one of those guys that 
most people don't think of as loving poetry. But when God writes it, I'm going to call it good. If you write it, it'll be suspect. <laughs> Why don't we do this? Turn with me to Colossians 1.15. See how far you have to turn for that? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. In other words, God didn't create you that way. It was the scene of judgment. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, the whole gospel story is that God hovered over your life and He brought a way for divine order to enter into your life. By the time we get to, first, to John 14 and the 25th through 27th verse, He said, My peace I give unto you. My divine order. I do not give as the world gives. He's not going to take it away. He's introducing us to not only the right way to live, the purposeful way to live. There's another Hebrew word that we need to get to because I'm going to need to close here soon. I put it on the board back there. And this has to do with the purpose that He's given us. In this church, you know very often we quote Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which ends with the concept that God prepared good works in advance for you to do. That's not a New Testament concept. We found this back in the Genesis poem. It was something that he emphasized right before the climax of the whole poem. The climax of the whole poem was that God said it's very good. The thing that he said right before it came in verse 28, and it's when he said, I have blessed you to multiply and go and fill the earth. God had worked for man to do. He ordered the creation and then he put one man in it to rule the entire creation. This is the story of Jesus, friends. Jesus looked out and saw chaos in His creation. He saw what He called sheep without a shepherd. Directionless, purposeless people. And He showed up as the light of God. Don't the Gospel writers call Him light? Yes. He showed up as the light of God, the firstborn of all creation to show you the right order, the right way to live. He demonstrated it and then said, I'll give you that peace. The same commission that was given to Adam was also given to you. Look at Genesis 1.28. While we're in Genesis 1.28, I'd like to tell you that that last Hebrew word, male, looks like male. I know, I wish that'd be a beautiful argument between the sexes, but it's not. It's not male. It's male. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Do we have any King James fans in here? Got a King James Bible somewhere in here? Anybody got one? What's it say? 
Nobody's got a King James Bible. Look, we've done our work well, Zeke. I don't know what to say. Zeke used to carry one, started hanging around with me, and now he's in the NIV. I'm sorry. Tell your, tell your previous pastor I'm sorry. King James says, replenish the earth. This is because Mahale in the Hebrew, it can mean fill. There's no question about that. But it means fill something that is empty. You know some other places that it's used? Do you remember in 1 Kings when uh, Solomon prayed and the glory of the Lord filled the temple? Now let me ask you something. Do you think of that like just pouring water in there? When you think of the glory of the Lord filling something, is that an awesome thing? Do you think there was any part of the temple that in some way did not reflect the Lord? When the glory of the Lord filled the temple. How about when the prophet said the glory of the Lord fills the earth? Both of those are male. And you know what he's trying to say? He's trying to say permeates every possible thing. God's glory permeates everything. You know what he told the man to do in Genesis 1.28? Go forth and fill with the presence that I have put in you, I've made you in every possible thing. You know what he says next? Subdue it. In other words, there will be resistance here. But I want you to overcome it. Come on now. Where did that resistance come from? On what day was that created? When we get to a knowledge of good and evil, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on what day was that evil created? How could there be a knowledge? Are, are, are y'all tracking with me here? Yes. For me, this is, this is not a theory. It's a certainty. I don't know how you could read the word and not come to that conclusion eventually. But that's not the point. The point is that God didn't, didn't create anything to be evil. He created everything to be filled with the glory that He gave you. That's the point. The commission to mankind has never changed. It is be fruitful and multiply. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. God ordered the creation and then He put the ruler of the creation in it. And it was a man. And when we failed at our task, He became a man and came and did it for us and said, Now walk like him. You could take away from today's message four Hebrew words if that's what you want to take away from it. What I hope you take away from it is that God will never leave chaos alone. He will never leave darkness alone. He is the changing factor to those situations. And the way that He changes it, friends, is He takes a man in His image and He puts him in the middle of it. So why was your week bad? Why is your workplace difficult, Nolan? Why are you in the midst of a trial? Because he stamped his holy image upon you. And he put you there to subdue the problem. He put you there to completely fill and permeate the whole place with the presence of God. He put you there to multiply. The Bible says that you would be like yeast, working its way through the whole loaf. It never says you would be stagnant, that you would settle for a bumper sticker, that you would sit back and want to eat a wafer and call that salvation. Instead, you are the catalyst for change on the planet. Amen. And you know what? It didn't get any worse than where it started. And God called that very good. So what are we now? Come on now. 
it'll never get any worse than where it started. By the way, when he flooded the earth with Noah charm, he hung a rainbow in the sky, what did he say? It's my covenant. I'll never flood it again. It's possible he had only done it once, but it'd make a whole lot more sense if it was his second time and Noah was hoping there wouldn't be a third. I don't want to convince you of a theological point today. I want you to see yourself as light in the darkness. The person of God's image who is called Tamale filled everything. Is that fair enough? Y'all stand your feet. We'll go eat. Feet eat. Male. We'll go Male. Tamale. That is a, a Hebrew conjugation of a... In the beginning, these are the names, and the Lord called in the wilderness and gave them the word. We all have the same story, friends. None of you were born saved. All of you have moved from tohu vavohu right into God's word, his devarim. Every once in a while, we can look at a word like hayah. And it doesn't matter whether it says, let there be or there was. Because when God says it, it's both. Come on now. The first time that God ever said the word Hayah, you cannot tell what tense it's in. Let there be light, and there was light. You know why? Both are true when he speaks. Sometimes in your life, he's going to speak something that doesn't look true. But because he said it, it is true. Amen. Hayah. Let's pray.